Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Have your Bible turned to the book of Revelation. Today we'll be looking at verses, chapter number 1, verses 9, on down to verse 20. Now you might say, that's a whole lot that we'll cover. Well, I'll do my best tonight to push us and break out the bullwhip and get us going on the road to get a little further down into the text here. If you remember, we spoke about Revelation, how it is not a puzzle book. It is not where we hold a newspaper in one hand and a globe in one hand. Well, if you got three hands, uh, we hold a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. That the Bible has here the final revelation of Jesus Christ as a picture book. It is not a puzzle book. It's not something that we have to decipher, to run through computers and have to figure out, to puzzle things together. But it gives us a beautiful glimpse as an ideology of what the end times will look like. Basically, this is the same story told over and over. And in the story, no matter if you're Pre, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, one guy told me he's pan. Now what does that mean? That means it all pans out in the end. I'm sure you've heard that story before. But in all those settings, Jesus comes back in the end. Amen. In the end of it all, Jesus comes back for His, pre- his people and His bride. But tonight, we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 1. Do you remember of last week when we spoke about how Jesus is speaking to John and He says, I'm the Alpha and Omega verse number 8. And he says, the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We'll notice here how Jesus uses the old language found in Isaiah and Ezekiel to to reinforce to his church that he is God, he's equal to God. And now we see in verse number 9, as John will see the vision of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is used over 85 times by Jesus in the Gospels. It was one of his favorite nicknames. It shows us that even though he's a down-to-earth deity, he would call himself Son of Man to show us that he is a servant. That should resonate to any church member or church attender that Jesus humbled himself to serve mankind, that we should humble ourselves to serve our neighbors and our fellow church members and even society. That Jesus, who was King of kings and Lord of lords, also took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples, that we should do the likewise and serve like Jesus serves. But we see here in verse number 9, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patience endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now that's a long verse, but let's go ahead and start unpacking it. Here we know who the author is. The penman of this text is John. He says he is your brother and partner in the tribulation. Now this is not the tribulation that we've heard so much about in the series of Left Behind or Tim LaHaye or many popular preachers like Perry Stone or any other preacher that you heard on TV that talks about a day when an evil antichrist would rise up and cause all the Christians to be herded into cattle cars and shipped off to FEMA camps to have their heads sliced off because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. That's not 
what John is talking about here. He's talking about tribulation. You must remember that John at this point had been boiled alive and because of his preaching while he was in the cauldron, he was down in the pit being boiled alive and he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and God by his providence and his grace and we'll see it in the text here because God decides when a sparrow falls from the sky and dies. He decides when a baby gives up his last breath. He decides when an old person is laying in their bed on their deathbed when their soul is taken because the keys of death, hell, and the grave are given to Christ. He decided in his grace to keep John alive. He decided because God who is known as Jesus, decides who lives and dies every time, anytime, all the time. John now is alive, but he's in tribulation. He has been exiled because they couldn't boil him. They call him the Christian cockroach. I don't know if you ever grow up as poor as me, but when you get rid of one cockroach, there's another. There's more, and you feel like you want to step on all of them, but they seem like they will not die. They're always around. The thing is that John was boiled alive even though his body was extra crispy. He was aching, hurting. He still preached about the things that he saw, the things that he touched, the things that he remembers about Jesus and the things that Jesus did. But now he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. So John is telling us here that he's on the island of Patmos. And as he writes this, this is not just for one century of Christians. It's not for the Christians in the first 100 years. It's not for the Christians in the final time before the end times. It must be relational to all Christians across all time. So all tribulation. John is saying here that he's in tribulation, that this life is hard. Can anybody testify to that? If you can't testify that life is hard, then you probably are going down the stream like dead fish do. But if you're in the struggle, if you're in the fight, if you're in tribulation, maybe it's because you're walking with Jesus and you're on the narrow road. The broad road leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Here, John says, I'm your brother. That means he's grafted in and he's saved only because of Jesus and partner in the tribulation. Notice he's a partner in tribulation and the kingdom. And he's with us in patient endurance. Notice that the tribulation is also counterbalanced by the patient, patient endurance. Knowing that your faith, your faith is worth having because you've been through things to see that your, your faith is worth having. You will know that he's faithful. If you've been betrayed, you know that he's a healer if you've been afflicted. You know that he's one who sticks closer than a brother if you've been betrayed. You know that he walks in the valleys if you walk through valleys. Here we see that he's in the tribulation, but let us not forget he's on the island of Patmos. Away from his family and his friends, away from those he loved. He was excommunicated from the church of Ephesus Ephesus by the, the Roman ruler at the time. They found out that he was the pastor of Ephesus, so they just kicked him out, tried to boil him alive, and when he didn't die, they sent him to a slave camp called Cat the Patmos. That's why we see here that he's on the island called Patmos on the account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was on the island because he preached from the Word of God. He preached on the account of Jesus Christ. So he knows tribulation. Now many times we say, well, those people don't like me. I'm going through tribulation. Maybe they don't like you because you're just mean. That's not what he's talking about here for you. 
Sometimes you will face tribulation because you're just a, a surly old fellow. It's your, that you're melancholy. But that's not why John is facing tribulation. He's facing tribulation because of the account of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. For standing firm and preaching, so saith the Lord. But he says, I'm in the kingdom. He says, I'm enduring with patience. Oh, weary Christian, whoever you are. Endure because you're in the kingdom. Endure because Jesus loves you. At this first revelation here, this first pulling back of the curtain, we'll see who put John on this island. Because it was in exile that John here finds comfort. You'll notice that there's always a revelation in the Bible whenever there's somebody going through exile. You remember Moses at the guard, he was outside and Moses was exiled from uh, Egypt and he finds a burning bush and there was a revelation of the great I am sending him to, to rescue his people. There's an exile of Elijah when he's out and he's weeping and he's murmuring to God because of Jezebel. But there's a revelation of God. He speaks to Elijah and he says, there are six to seven thousand who have not been the knee. There's always a revelation when in exile. And it just so happens this is our revelation. This is not just written to those who were born between the year 100 A.D. and the year 200 A.D. Oh, it's not written to the people in the future who ride around like the Jetsons in space cars and have spacesuits. It's written to us today because we go through tribulation today. This is for every church, for every year, for every tribulation, every hard time. It's written for us today. And John is a brother with us. You're in tribulation. So we hear back the echo of John from this time to us. We read here, and he says he's on the island called Patmos. He must tell us where it is because otherwise we won't know. He, his tribulation is now, is current, but so is the kingdom. We see that the kingdom is current. He is a part of the kingdom. He talks about the tribulation, but now he talks about the kingdom. That Jesus reigns, even though things are hard. Even though our hearts are broken, even though there are days when things are heavy, our minds are cloudy, our hearts are torn asunder, our souls weep because of the wickedness around us. Our addictions take over us and they attack our flesh and we battle within ourselves. Oh, wretched man that I am, like Paul says in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, what hope is there for me? And then he answers his own question with, Jesus Christ is my only hope. The tribulation is, is, is true and is now, but so was the kingdom. Trouble is real. I, I don't invite you here on a Sunday night and feed you lies and say a sweet by and by. There's no troubles. There's no hardships. We all know there's trouble. We all know there's hardships, but we also know that He reigns, that He is God. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. What good parent would not what good parent would only give their child things that spoil them and make them have ill character what parent would try to give their children anything that their hearts desire only to cause their soul to be corrupt our god is good to us so the hard things that come our way make us bend our knees and cry out to him all the more that all things hardships broken hearts Broken dreams and broken promises. All things, cancer, sickness, loss. All things work towards our good for those who love God. We have a good God. And even the bad things that happen to us are still for our good. 
Here we see that John talks about he's in the tribulation, but he's also in the kingdom. And he has patient endurance. That those who are, on Je- those who are in Jesus, he was on the island of Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been put in a place of tribulation? Have you ever been put in a place of loss because of your testimony of Jesus Christ? If you have not, then probably you've compromised. Because serving Jesus will cost you something. Well, we, we might say, well, not really. We're in America. It's easy to serve Jesus. It's easy to hide in church is what it is. We hide in church here because it's easy to go to church. But whenever there's a Sunday night service and it causes us to sacrifice our time to come to hear the Word of God, then that's where the rubber meets the road. The meat meets the metal. Then we'll know who truly is who is He is. Now, don't get me wrong, Judas was among his 12 disciples. Judas had the best preacher there ever was, and yet he still died and went to hell. There are still those who are hypocrites and liars among us who are still playing the part of a Christian who don't belong to Jesus. But that's not my problem. That's for God to weed out. That's for God to to handle. But I'm supposed to preach the gospel to feed the sheep that gather to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We see here that... The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He talks about tribulation and kingdom. In John 16.33, He says, Jesus is speaking. He says, I have said these things to you, that in Me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's saying that the road will be hard. It will be broken, and it will break you. But take heart, He has overcome it all. Amen. That's good to know. That's, that makes me want to run laps around the church to know that my God is in control. Even though it will be hard, there will be dark days, He still shines all the more brighter. He's still a God who keeps His promises. He will not walk out on me. He will not forget me and leave me in my mess. Amen. Somebody. We see that He talks about the kingdom. In 2 Timothy 2.12, He says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us, if you belong to Jesus, it's as if you are already in heaven with Jesus. There is no, there is no, I, I, I longing for a city, but it's like I'm already there because He walks with me, He talks with me, and claims me as His very own. Yes, I'm still in the world, and there's nothing that will snatch me from His hand. His heaven is as good as mine. That should cause you to be a little excited, I think. Amen. He promised me that He forgives me. And I can walk in forgiveness, not walking in guilt. That His grace is all over me. And I belong to Him. Here He says, I'm in tribulation, but also the kingdom. We see the duality of of Christianity. We we walk in pain in our body, but we walk in healing at the same time. It's not that we're, we're mentally unstable. It's just that we have faith, knowing that Jesus loves sinners, even though we're sinners. We see here that John... He's at the prison camp called Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. In verse number 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's not that he was dreaming. 
It was not that he was, he was in a, 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 a trance. But, well, he was in a trance because we have text in the Bible that tells us about a trance where people have visions. But he says here, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now remember, I told you that this book is a picture book and something that you'll have to see here is that there will be symbols, there will be numbers and things that you see that unless there's an interpretation and it's given to you in the text you'll have to look back in the old testament to see what they mean but we see here he says i was in the spirit on the lord's day that was not the sabbath day for the jewish gather on the sabbath day if you have a calendar hanging up in your kitchen on your refrigerator or even on your phone you'll see that the sabbath day is the seventh day of the week and that's the end of the week but the lord's day which is the day we gather together on the day that the lord rose from the dead is on sunday that is the first day of the week we also see uh, that, that the first day of the week is when the, the early church in the book of Acts would gather together to worship, to distinguish themselves from the Jewish people. So we see here on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the first day, John was in the Spirit. He was having a revelation on this island. Can you imagine the waters crashing on the, the beach of Patmos? And then he's in a trance in the Spirit. In Acts chapter 22, in Acts 10, and in 2 Corinthians 12, we see a trance and a vision. It's not uncommon in the New Testament for God to have a revelation to those. In the book of Acts 22, we see where Peter is there and he has a vision of the unclean animals. In Acts chapter 10, and also 2 Corinthians, where Paul is taken up in a vision to the seventh heaven is what we hear. We see that it's the Lord's Day, which is the seventh Seventh day is, we see seventh candlestick, seven trumpets, seven lampstands. And then the sixth day of the week, we see that God created man. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside to store up that he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. We see here, it's the Lord's day as Paul is writing to the Corinth church to take up a collection on the first day of the week to start out their week perfectly with God in in focus. But you'll notice here as he is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he heard behind him a loud voice. So we see here as this picture book, we have to look behind us to understand the keys that are before us because the voice was behind him, not in front of him. Here John turns, he sees, what we see in verse 11, saying, this is what the voice said as it was loud like a trumpet. Notice in this picture book, you'll hear sounds that are loud. You'll hear voices that are booming. When something is loud like a trumpet, it means something. You must take notice in verse 11. Write, these, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Paragam, and to Tyra, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. In verse 11... He's telling him to write what you see. He's telling John what's laid before him. He's telling him to write it in the book. And he says this 12 times through the book of Revelation. Write what you see, John. Write what you see. Now we know that in this time period, at the time he was writing this, there are more than seven churches in the historical period of when John wrote this. But why these seven? 
Well, there have been many theologians and commentaries who say these seven churches talk about the dispensation of history of all the churches throughout history. As we look at these different churches, they'll say there's a time period when the church was going through this and that. I, 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 don't, I don't agree. I don't agree. I believe that this text is for all Christians of all time to read. And what we'll do as we get closer to the next chapter, we will actually look at that church. Look at the issues that they were facing in their culture and why the Holy Spirit was writing to them at that time and compare ourselves to those churches. If Jesus were to have John write to Riverside, what would it say? If Jesus... What having John dictate to this church? How would he begin? Would he be proud of us? Would he be angry? Would he correct us? Would he be disappointed in us? As we continue, we see that these churches that were written, written to by John, they were written in a circle. And at the center of the circle was Patmos. It's just where John was. John was to write this letter and it was to go and be delivered, hand delivered to these churches around a full circuit to Asia Minor and those places around Turkey. These churches were to read aloud this letter. Whenever people run from the book of Revelation, they are running from a blessing. In the story of Revelation, we see that Jesus conquers and that He wins and it's about Him. Not about Apache helicopters. Not about the beast. Not about a false prophet who fire, calls fire down from heaven. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. Don't get caught up in the numbers. Don't get caught up in the small details that cause you to miss the bigger picture of it all. When we began this study together, I told you that I love to go on cruises. And if you ask me and my family, how was the cruise? Well, we always get a one with a window, at least a balcony, so I can sit and look at the water as we're cruising along. But if you ask me, how was the cruise? And I described everything but the view. I described the carpet. I described how nice the walls were, how well they were painted. If I described the windows and how the grain around the window, how nice it was and how it shellacked and how it glowed when the sun hit it just the right way. If I spoke about how the bathroom, how it looked and how nice and crisp it was, you would say, well, tell me about the view because that's why you went. That's why you paid the extra money to look at the water, to look at the mountains, to look at all of God's beauty. I would have missed the whole point. Many times when we look at the picture window of Revelation, we look at all the details. We look at everything around, the view, the most important thing. And now we get ready to see the view. I framed everything around it. I've told you about John. He's on the island of Patmos. Why he's there. He's in tribulation and hardships. But now we get to bask and take in the view. He looks in verse 12. Then I turned. Do you see John turning? Is it old elderly John? Body scarred from the oil. His heart heavy from working in ministry these many years. He was the youngest of the disciples. He laid his head on the chest of Jesus. And Jesus called him the disciple whom he loved. John saw every one of the apostles die because being martyred for preaching the gospel. And just Jesus alone has kept John alive. I don't know. Who to feel more sorry for? 
the apostles who were being slaughtered for preaching the gospel or John who lived a long time to see all his loved ones dying and bearing the hardship of ministry. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know who to feel more horrible for, to feel bad for. But either way, they're in the palm of Jesus. He is in control. In verse 12, he said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. I tried an experiment. I've heard about it before. Uh, whenever uh, when my wife was pregnant with my oldest. And I tried it with my youngest. It actually works. What it is, is they tell daddies who have babies and the, the wife who has the baby in the womb to sing to the child. You might say, well, that sounds so foolish. No, 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 let me finish. I would sing to the child in the womb. I would let him be acquainted with my voice because I wanted to try something on the day uh, when my wife brought forth in the delivery room my babies. I saw as they took my children from my wife, I looked over the curtain and I saw my baby being laid down as they clean them up. Thank God they clean them up. Amen. But uh, I, I started to saying, hey Levi. I said, hello Levi. And my baby, I'm going to tell you, he turned his head and looked towards his daddy. I did the same thing with my youngest, Silas. I said, hey Sasa. He turned his head and he heard my voice. He turned his head towards me. Because he heard my voice. He was acquainted with it before he was even born. Because I sang to him every night. You can ask my wife. He got on her nerves. Because y'all know I can't carry no tune. But my children turned their heads because they heard their father's voice. We see here this story where John turns his head. I, I know that voice. I know that voice. That voice, it's, it spoke to me. It, it was, it's familiar to me. This same voice told the church, my sheep know my voice. Another they will not follow. When an imposter comes, they will run from them. My sheep know my voice. That's why John turns his head. He knows the one who spoke to him. And when he turned his head, when he heard, he turned and he saw golden Lampstands. Now, I want you to understand in the Old Testament, there's a thing called the menorah. It was one giant lampstand that had seven branches and there was lit a, a, a wick there. And it was the job of the high priest to make sure that this wick and this, this lampstand would always be burning. But that's not the case here. These are seven individual lampstands. So once again, we're, we're reaching back in the Old Testament but we see something different and new. These golden lampstands were there and they were flickering. And in verse 13, we see in the midst of the golden, in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We see here that he, he is a, a one who was dressed in a certain type of way. This person who was called like in the son of man. If you know the story in the book of Daniel, whenever the three Hebrew children were dancing in the fire and old Nebuchadnezzar looked down and he peered into the fiery furnace, he says, there is one who appears like the son of God. There's one dancing in the fire. We also hear, remember we talked about Jesus using this same moniker as the son of man. It was his favorite nickname. He used it 85 times. Here John remembers that Jesus loved that nickname like the Son of Man. 
And here he is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. you, you got to remember that when the high priest dressed a certain way, they dressed in such a way that we read in the book of Exodus that they had a long garment and they had a chest plate. Jesus is dressed here as a high priest. Oh, I'm sorry, I get a little excited about that because I know my church history. I know what the Old Testament says. And you should too. As we read in the book of Hebrews that he is our great high priest. Here he's dressed as our high priest amongst the golden lampstands. I know you're not a little excited about that because we hadn't got to the next part and you hadn't quite clicked it yet to understand what is taking place here. He says, in the midst of the lampstands. Now, we ain't got there yet, but a, a, spoiler, alert, a spoiler alert. It's going to let you know that the lampstands are His church. His churches. They're all independent of one another. and He's in the midst of them. There's seven churches. Which it means completeness. Absolutely. There's more than seven churches. But symbolically it means they're completely His. And He walks among them. In the Old Testament, the high priest would... Take care of the wicks. If there was a flame that was flickering and smoldering, the high priest would snuff it out. And he would do work to make sure that it comes back glowing all the more. Here our high priest walks among his churches, snuffing out churches. Oh, you've heard of churches collapsing, haven't you? If they close, if the doors close of a church, it's because Jesus decides to snuff them out. If a church is on fire and growing greatly, consuming and glowing greatly like a city on a hill, it's because Jesus has fed it the oil that it needs to burn brightly. Jesus is in control. He's among His churches. That's our great high priest. Church, look back how we've been blessed. Oh, it's been a miracle how we've been blessed. And it's not because of me. In fact, it's in spite of me. It's only because of the one, the great high priest who walks among his churches, who's tender towards his churches, who speaks to his churches, and they hear his voice. How he tends the wick. He snuffs out some and causes others to glow all the more. It's his work. He has a a long robe. He's dressed as a high priest. He has a sash going across his chest. Much like a high priest. We know that he stands among the, the golden lampstands in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. He is the son of man here as he's described by John. And we know that here in John chapter 5 verse 27, John writes, and he was given to him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The golden sash that he wears it comes right out of Isaiah chapter 22, 21 through 22. 
Here God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and and I will bind your sash on him, and commit your authority into his hand. And he he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none will open, and none shall open. This is the description of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse number 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool. White like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Notice the hair of his head is is purity. It's not from age and worn outness. It's because of his purity. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, once again, like John turned from behind, he heard a voice from behind. We look back in the Old Testament as a voice. And Daniel chapter 7 tells us the ancient of days. In chapter number 7 verse 9, I looked and thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow and his hair was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Here Daniel describes the same imagery that John writes. He saw the blazing altar. He saw the white hair. He saw Jesus. In the next part we see that His eyes were like a flame of fire. Much like a laser that pierces through men. He looks through us. He sees through the hearts of women and children and men. He knows. His eyes are scouring, burning. And He looks into our souls. We read in Deuteronomy 4.24, For our God is a consuming fire. We spoke about this morning about the refiner's fire. That when we go through the trials, I want you to remember as we spoke about this morning about the furnace when it heats up a metal. It also causes all the impurities to float to the top. But it takes a great amount of energy and fire to heat up that metal. But also know that his eyes are like fire. In the middle of the fire, his eyes are on you. And he refines you and makes you in his image. In Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord searches the heart and He tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And Daniel chapter 6, once again, Daniel says, His body was like burl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. And His arms and His legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of His words were like the sound of a multitude. Daniel wrote about the same Jesus that's being revealed here. In verse number 16. No, we, 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 we skip one. In verse number 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And His voice was like the roar of many waters. In verse 15, we must remember. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus whenever Moses would make the brazen altar, the altar of refining, the altar of burning where they would take the animal and burn him on the brazen altar. That it was made of bronze. That all the utensils were made of bronze. That it was used to burn any sacrifice. We see here that his feet were bronze. 
that Jesus uses the imagery of the Old Testament to say that His feet are the feet of judgment. Don't you remember as the, the, the Scriptures tell us that on the earth, his, the earth is His footstool, that His earth will be under His feet. He will judge the earth. And the bronze, uh, the imagery, the imagery of the bronze idol uh, altar here shows us that Jesus will judge the nations. We see that His eyes are eyes of fire. His hair is pure. It's pure and white like wool, like snow. Refined in a furnace and His voice was the roar of many waters. John uses the atmosphere that He's in. Remember it was just loud earlier, but now when Jesus speaks, it's a thundering voice like the ocean as it falls on the shore of Patmos. Now when Jesus speaks, before when He got His attention and He turned His head and He knew the voice, now the voice speaks with authority as He's getting ready to speak to the seven churches. In verse 16, I do hope you put on your seatbelts because this is part one of my favorite parts. In His right hand, He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. In this part of text, we can see that His face glowed like the noonday, noonday sun. We must remember that the weak little candles that He was walking among, they did put off light. They did flicker. But they were nothing compared to Him. Amen. Church, we do good works and we do good things, but we are nothing compared to Him. A good, a good whisper will put us out. A good draft will put us under. We are first-hand experienced people to know that a good flood will put us flat on our back and we'd be ruined. With just a flick of His wrist, God could do away with us with no problem. Amen. We're simple little candles in the wind. But He, but His face, it shines like the noonday sun. He walks among us. In His right hand, He held seven stars. What are these seven stars, you might say? These seven stars, He explains later, so we'll wait on that. He, he actually tells us Himself what they mean. But we see in verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face shined like the sun shining in full strength. We must look at verse 16 and know that the, his two-edged sword is what comes from his mouth. A two-edged sword is what they used in that day. It cuts in when you slice it in and it cuts coming out. But many theologians and many commentaries say this is also the law. He gives us the law. Jesus gives us the law. He was a preacher of the law. He actually said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't think that I've come to change the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus was a law keeper. Those who preach that Jesus was a lawbreaker and a rebel are, not, are, are taking the Scriptures and, and, and disc, discombobulating and tr pulling it out of joint and making it say something that it doesn't. Jesus kept God's laws. You must understand. He died for our sins, but He kept, he kept God's laws. So His goodness and His righteousness was accounted to us. So not only are we forgiven... We are righteous in the eyes of God because Jesus kept the law of God. Amen, somebody. That's good to me. Yes. We see here that He has a 
A sword that comes from his mouth. A two-edged sword. One was the law and the other was the gospel. One cuts and the other heals and cuts away. The gospel and the law. They walk hand in hand. Even Paul tells us that the law is when it's used correctly. It is to humble us and show us that we need a Savior. And then we give the gospel. We wound first. Whenever you share the gospel with someone, always start at the law. Show that the person is depraved and needs a Savior because most people will boast in themselves and say how good they are. They'll boast in how, how their accomplishments and the things they've done in the name of God whenever God was not the reason they did anything. They'll boast in their goodness until you show them the law. Show them how wicked they are and they need a Savior. For Jesus didn't come to make... Good men better. He came to save and raise dead men to make them like Him. We see here that He speaks of the two-edged sword and the brightness of His face. Those who are in a dark place. Those whose hearts are broken and who are in a dark valley. Cast your eyes upon Jesus. Know that His eyes are already on you. I want to remind you, you can't go so far where He can't see you. You you will never be out of His reach. You, You will never be behind a mountain or under a mountain where our God cannot see you. Cast your eyes on Jesus. Cast your eyes on Him. And the things of this world, like the song says, will grow strangely dim. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this is good. I guess it's because the beginning of the, ver- the beginning of the book says, those who preach this will be blessed. Those who hear this will be blessed. And those who do what's in this will be blessed. Maybe that's why I'm getting so blessed up here, y'all. Amen. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face shined like the sun, shining in full strength. In verse 17, this is how he reacted. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's unpack just this part. This elderly John who walked with this Jesus... In his earthly form, now cast his eyes on him, beholding him in all his glory. And he falls as if he were dead. That's how the story goes. When we see God face to face, beheld in all his Shekiah and all his might, we fall as if we are dead because we cannot coexist in such a holy moment. John, all that his ambitions, all his strength is gone in the presence of the mighty God, Jesus. He falls as if he were dead. And he would stay dead. I want you to realize. John would stay there as a heap in a pile of ashes and bones. Unless Jesus reaches out and touches him. <laughs> oh, oh, hold it together. Uh, he, unless he reaches out and speaks to him. you got to understand. Jesus, with all his power and his might, reaches out and speaks to John. And that same voice, the same voice that he heard on the lake whenever the storm was overtaking them and they saw him walking on the water. And Jesus speaks out and says, Fear not, it's me. This is the same Jesus who now places his hand on John and says, Don't be afraid. 
Oh, that's good. Y'all know that's good. I can't let that moment pass you by without you really thinking about that. Here John is laying at the feet of the mighty God, Jesus. He lays his hands on him and says, don't fear. If he says that, if he says that to John, and he says that to you, what are you afraid of? What are you frightened of? What is the anxiety that's overwhelming you and taking you by force and holding you hostage? This is the God whose face shines as it's the noonday. He holds stars in His hands. What are you worried about? He says in John chapter 6 verse 20, It is I, do not be afraid. The same Jesus said on the sermon at Matthew chapter 10 verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valued than many sparrows. The same God who spoke through the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 41 verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. He says, don't be afraid. We should be. But he tells us, don't be afraid. This familiar voice says to John, when he lays his right hand on him, because he was laying there dead, you, you also notice in verse 17 that in his right hand are Seven stars, but he had enough room to lay his hand on John. The God who holds the constellation is able to put his hand on you and ease your fears. And that ain't even going to make his hands full. Uh, Y'all know I'm married to the love of my life. I only need one wife. I don't know how Abraham and all them did it with all them women. And as many people say, you got your hands full. I do, I do. I love my wife. I love her. And some of y'all think that you keep God's hands full but all your mess and all your drama and all your extra and all the things that you're going through. It ain't no stretch for God to handle your situation. Here Jesus has seven stars in His hands and He still reaches down and touches John. And He didn't even wince. He didn't go, uh. You know how we do when we got to pick up the car keys when we drop them? Uh. We make that noise. That's how you know you get older. You make a louder noise. Oh. Sometimes we drop stuff and say, well, it's gone forever. I'm never picking it up. But Jesus don't wince. He simply reaches down with seven stars in His hands and touches John and says, don't be afraid. This is our God. Fear not, is what he says. I'm the first and the last. He, who, who, who is like this Jesus? He tells us that He's the beginning and the end. Once again, He's using analogy from the Old Testament in Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am He. We see in Isaiah 48.12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. Whom I called, I am He. I am the first and I am the last. In Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. 
He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross. This is our Jesus. Here He says, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. In verse 18. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This Jesus tells us that He's the living one. We don't serve a bag of bones. We don't go and reverence a grave site. We go to the living one. Jesus Christ in all His glory. <laughs> He's the living one. And He said, I die. We always run from death. We're doing everything we can to try to stay away from death. We do anything to, to hold off death a little bit longer. But Jesus said, the thing you fear, I've conquered. The thing you run from, I've already overtook it and overwhelmed it by grace and power and mercy. Jesus says, I'm alive. I was dead, but I ain't dead no more, y'all. Amen. Thank you. The very thing we fear, He has conquered. But not only conquered... And he says, behold, I'm alive forever. As long as you're on this earth and you're going through trials, don't worry. Your advocate, your mediator, the one who holds you, the one who says don't fear, is going to be in charge. Don't worry. There won't be a memo or an email sent out. There will not be a news bulletin. Oh no, Jesus is off the throne. Oh no, there's going to be a new Messiah put in place and He might not like you. Oh no, you found yourself on the wrong side of the voting poll and now somebody who's the opponent of Jesus is now running the place. You're not going to get an email tomorrow that says Satan now runs everything. He's alive forevermore. Always, all the time. He's gracious enough to show you mercy today and gracious enough to show your great, 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 great grandchildren mercy. <laughs> oh, that's my Jesus. Amen. I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys of death. Do you see that? I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to get political. This is not a place where I stand on a soapbox and tell you my opinion. I'm just giving you the facts, and the facts will dictate how you think and how you live. The facts are doctrine and theology that Jesus has the keys of death. He decides who dies, He decides who lives. Not a vaccine, not a pharmaceutical company, not whoever has the best ventilators. Now who has the best medicine? Jesus decides. Man, that would offend somebody. Oh, what about what about science? What about what about what the Bible says? I, I I understand. I understand logic and all that. But I stand here and I know that he has the keys of death and Hades. Hades is not just hell, it's the afterlife. It's an old testament word that means when you die, you go to Hades. It's a holding place. But once Jesus had now died and risen again, Hades was consumed. And now when you die to be absent from the bodies and present with the Lord, you meet Christ face to face and you have a beam of judgment. Well, the epistles say that the believers stand there and they have to give an account for their lives if they were faithful or not. And those who were unbelievers stand before Jesus and they give an account. And then there later there is a great, great white throne judgment. But the point is this. 
That Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. And I want you to know that He decides who dies and He also decides who comes out of the grave. On that fateful day when we die, we stand before God. He will call those who are dead in the grave, those who are in the ocean, those who are in land, those who have been cremated, those who are buried whole. He will call them out of the grave and there will be a judgment. So He controls the door who comes and goes. He is God and He's over it all. Amen. He has the keys of death and Hades. This should cause you to sleep much soundly at night. Knowing that He is in control even over who lives and who dies. In verse number 19, He tells him to write, therefore, the things that you have seen. He's telling him to write this vision now. Write down who, who, you, who you saw, when you saw, what took place, what was I holding. And what are those things that take place after this? He's telling John there will be other visions. And you've got to write them down too. You'll notice in all the books of the test, Old Testament that God tells Daniel to seal up the book. To close the book. Don't let anybody understand it. But here He's telling John to write the book and it's being revealed to us. The Old Testament was Jesus prophesied about. The New Testament is Jesus being revealed to us. In verse number 20, Jesus Himself tells us what the vision means. In verse 20, For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. <laughs> See, y'all didn't get that. An angel is a messenger. An angel is one who is sent by God to give a message a messenger of the seven churches. Each church had a messenger. Each church had a proclaimer, a heralder, one who would go before a king and say, the king is coming, get ready, prepare yourselves, make the road straight, everybody back up, here comes the king, here he comes, make your way through, everybody back up, the king is behind me, a heralder. A heralder is one who is a preacher. A one who's a messenger. You see in the text, <laughs> over every church, all his churches, all the candlesticks that he walks among, he has his preachers and leadership and elders and deacons that are in his hand. Amen. Deacons, did you hear me? You're in his hand. I figured y'all hallelujah that. I know I like that part. <laughs> when the struggles of ministry bear on me, and they're heavy. It's okay, I'm in His hand. Amen. When, when it's mighty dark and kind of scary, I'm in His hand. Yes. When I don't know up from down, and I feel like I'm in free fall, it's okay. I'm in His hand. Oh, oh yeah, don't get me wrong. We can vote and have uh, pulpit committees, and we can have congregational votes and business meetings, but ultimately, if it's His church, they're in His hand. Some of y'all don't like that. <laughs> we put you to... No, you didn't. No, you didn't. It was Christ. And if He decides to take me out anytime, He's free to do so. For He holds constellations in the palm of His hand. Who am I to say anything against that? If He decides when I take my next breath, who am I to contest against the Almighty God? Jesus tells John here, tell the churches that their pastor's in the palm of my hand. Whew. 
That's humbling to all the pastors and all the elders and all the Sunday school teachers and all the leaders of the church. It ain't your church. It's His. That's right. And you're in the palm of His hand. He says also that the, the seven churches are the lampstands. They're the seven churches. And He walks among them. We see from the text here that Jesus walks among us. He says in the text, where two or more are gathered in His name, I'm among them, I'm there also. Our Jesus and all His might and all His glory is walking among Riverside Church today. I, I know, I know He is. And not just because I feel it, because there's sometimes I preach and I don't feel it. But then again, we don't walk by how we feel. Amen. We don't sit here and say, well, the preacher was off today. Man, I don't know. He must not have got enough sleep. I don't know. Maybe he skipped breakfast. I don't know what's wrong with him. But I didn't feel nothing. I don't walk by how I feel. Amen. I walk by what He said. I walk by faith. Amen. Our Jesus is among us. You might not be aware of it. You might not even, even notice it. You might be caught up in the details and miss the big picture. Maybe you're counting the tiles on the ceiling. Maybe you're thinking about something later on. Maybe your mind has wandered off to other things. But our Jesus is among us. He walks among His church. Each church is individual. Some are known for different things. Some churches are known for being great outreaches. Some have great praise and worship. Some are known for their preaching and proclamation. Some are known for being cold. Some are being known for falling away from the very things they once loved. And we'll see that as we start breaking down in the future text of Jesus speaking to His church. But He walks among His church. Some churches He snuff out. Some churches He sees that they're flickering and they're smoldering and He'll snuff them out. Some of them He'll reignite. But it's all in His time. It has nothing to do with the praise and worship team. It has nothing to do with who plays the piano or who plays the organ. It has nothing to do with the choir. It has nothing to do with the preacher. It has nothing to do with the elders and even the people who attend that church. It has nothing to do with the demographic or where the church is located. It has everything to do with Jesus because it's His church. He handles the wick. He pours the oil. He takes care of the churches. He holds the leaders in the palm of His hands. If you want to know how to build a church, start preaching about Jesus. Amen. Start preaching about Jesus and people who love Jesus will flock to your church to hear about Jesus. People who say, He's the lover of my soul. People who say, he saved me from a great wrath. This Jesus who died for a wretch like me. Tell me more about this Jesus. Pull back the curtain. Tell me. Exemplify. Magnify the Lord. Tell me of His might and His grace. Tell me more about this Jesus. Amen. It's His church. Ain't got nothing to do with us. In fact, it's in spite of us. Only because of His grace today does He walk among us. He shouldn't. He should condemn us and snuff us out, but in His mercy and His grace. He's dressed as a high priest who's taking care of the menorah in the Old Testament. He walks among His church now, taking care of them, preserving them, holding the leadership in the palm of His hand. Our Jesus is alive. Amen. Our Jesus reigns. Yes. And I want you to remember that tomorrow when you get up on Monday morning and it's time to go to work. You hear the alarm going up. Man, man, oh my Lord. You hit it. 
Let it be, oh my Lord, you reign. Oh my Lord, you are on the throne. You are not dead. Oh my God who reigns forevermore, I praise your name. You walk among your candlesticks. You hold the leadership in the palm of your hand. Nothing is too hard for you. You tell me, don't fear. Jesus obviously knows about what's going on in the world. And He tells His church, don't fear. If Jesus doesn't reign, I invite y'all back here next week and we'll all wear black. And we'll mourn that Jesus has died. And we'll just shut the door forever for good and go off and do our own thing. But if He's alive like the Scripture says, if He walks among the churches and He reigns over all of creation, let's meet back next week here and talk about Him and extol Him and lift up the name of Christ who reigns forever. Amen, somebody. Let's bow our heads and pray.